Welcome to the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast. We highlight keen investment insights and strategies so you can become a real estate mogul. Here's your host, Yannick Kujo Virgin. All right, guys, welcome back to the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Yannick Kujo Virgil, and I'm super excited for our guest today. Our guest today is Clive Davis. Now, Clive began his career as a corporate transactional lawyer with a Wall Street law firm. And after 20 years of corporate life, he dove in to commercial real estate full time as a commercial real estate investor and syndicator and is currently focused on the acquisition and operation of large-scale multifamily communities and is a general partner of over $70 million in assets under management. Clive, thank you so much for being on the show today. How you doing, Yannick? Uh, pleasure to be on. Let's dive into it. Give us a, a little bit about your story, your transition. How do you get to where you, where you are today? I, I know our listeners would be really excited to hear that. Yeah. So the story, uh, I'll start out kind of professionally. So lawyer by professional background. I started out as a corporate transactional lawyer uh, working uh, at a Wall Street firm in New York. And uh, I did that for several years where I did a range of things, M&A, mergers and acquisitions. I did some general banking. I ultimately assigned and became a capital markets uh, lawyer. And so that's what I was doing before I moved on and made my next transition, which was to go be in-house counsel for Pfizer which is in the news for good reasons uh, these days. And so I worked for them for uh, several years. They actually are responsible for relocating me to Atlanta, which is home today and has been home for the last almost 17 years. And so I was supporting their sales leadership team who was overseeing 1,500 sales representatives in the Southeast. And so I was the sole lawyer in the building. So if there was an issue that uh, they needed legal input on, uh, they'd come to me. I then went on to become a chief compliance officer, also in the pharma industry, but for a Brussels headquartered company with U.S. headquarters in Atlanta. And I did that for a total of nine years. So all in all, I had a 20-year corporate run. And at the end of 2016 is when I said, if not now, when? And uh, I had always had an interest and a thread and proximity to real estate. I'd invested in a small portfolio of uh, units throughout that 20-year period, but it was always kind of hobby-like and kind of peripheral, and it was not income that I was reliant upon. And even when I went to law school, I had an entrepreneurial itch, but didn't quite know what scratching that might look like. And so... I wasn't expecting necessarily to practice law traditionally, but got on that uh, pathway after you get six figures in loans on your shoulders. Coming out of law school, you've got to figure out what's the best way for me to pay that down. And so I found myself on this corporate path that uh, took me uh, 20 years before I exited stage left. And for me, at the end of 2016, uh, you know, I had uh, my oldest child at the time was six months away from heading off to college. My parents were elderly, aging, and so I wanted to spend more time with them and support more so kind of in-person, hands-on, as opposed to, you know, seeing them once in a while and kind of, you know, playing my position in terms of financial support. So I just needed a breather after 20 years. And um, early into that uh, 
stepping away, I just made the decision that I was going to pursue real estate full time and seek the, you know, to buy back my time. You know, when you're in corporate life, regardless of how well compensated you are, and I was blessed to be well compensated, especially in the latter part of my corporate career, you are effectively trading your time for dollars. Um, That's what a paycheck is. So you may be well compensated, but nonetheless, at the end of the day, your time is not your own. And, uh, you know, for me, I just figured as in my mid 40s at that point in time, I was just like, if I don't make this jump uh, and take this leap of faith now, when am I going to do it? I was Mm -hmm. also thinking about what am I modeling for my children? We've raised them to say, you can pursue whatever it is that you're passionate about, whatever it is that you're interested in. We push them to get outside of their comfort zone. And I kind of thought to myself, am I living what I am preaching uh, to my children where I've said, you know, you know, we're going to put you in a position where you're going to graduate from school with zero debt. You're not going to be in a position that I was in where kind of my kind of life decisions were being impacted based upon what's going to pay down this debt what's going to take care of these other familial responsibilities that I have. And so, um, you know, again, I kind of just self-examined and said, you know, Clive, are you really pushing yourself outside of your comfort zone? And the reality is the answer for me was that after 20 years, I was fairly complacent, fairly comfortable. I wasn't necessarily being challenged and my growth trajectory at this point in my career was somewhat flattening. And so the personal growth and even the professional growth wasn't uh, where it was like when I was in my 20s and 30s. And so all of those factors kind of came together and uh, led me to the decision that I'm uh, not returning to corporate life. I'm going to give this real estate thing a try. And worst case scenario, people say, wow, Clyde, that's really risky. And I say to them, actually, it's not. Because the way I approach it is, worst case scenario, if this leap of faith doesn't work out, I can really easily go find a six-figure job. Um, It might not be a job that I'm passionate about. It may not be a job that I'm interested in, but my family's going to be fine. We're going to eat. The bills are going to be paid. I just won't be doing something that pulls at the heartstrings. And so for me, what's risky is being in a corporate job or setting where if someone outside of yourself makes a decision that you are no longer needed or necessary or your department or your division or whatever, you're out of a job and you have no kind of plan B other than I got to go find another job. So for me, having the comfort and the privilege of knowing that I have an experienced skill set that is in demand such that if this entrepreneurial pursuit, this real estate pursuit doesn't work out, I'll, I'll be okay. And so that my, yeah. my fallback plan was worst case scenario, I can go find a job that will take care of the bills. Yeah, that's a great story. And I think there are a lot of things to unpack within that. When you talk about worst case scenario and you talk about taking that risk, I agree 100%. You know, a lot of employment or employees, you know, they're in their contracts, it's employment at will, right? And so you may think your job might be safe and you might be in certain industries that are somewhat insulated to to that protection. But at the end of the day, you are one decision away from being 
like released, right? And I say released from just my sports background because, you know, how it was in, in the NFL, it was, you know, employee X. You can come in one day and have your name at the top of the locker and then the, the next day is gone. Yeah. What advice do you have for people that are on the fence of like taking that jump, right? Because it is something that you have to come to terms with and you have to reconcile. And there's a certain mindset, I feel like, to come to terms with taking that risk. Like what advice do you have for people who, have the entrepreneurial bug, people who want to get into the space full time, but are just kind of like on the fence about making that next step. Yeah, I I think um, it requires some self-exploration. You know, you have to have that conversation with yourself and with your family and loved ones and make the decision ultimately that makes the most sense. But I think everyone at some point in time, if you have that kind of aspiration or desire, you've got to ask yourself the same question that I asked myself, which is, if not now, when? And so mm-hmm. you can defer it and say, I'm going to put it off a year or two years, but you're going to get to that point where, if not now, when? And so advice that I would give myself and others looking to make that transition is, even as long as you stay in the role, the position, uh, the setting that you're in now, there are things that you can be doing that will make that transition easier, whether that's a year from now, 18 months from now, two years, whatever the case may be, there are some things that you can be doing. So one of those things that I could have been doing and others could be doing is, I did not necessarily appreciate the world of alternative investments, particularly in the real estate space that existed and the opportunity to invest in private placement opportunities as kind of a supplement or a way of diversifying kind of what we're all told in corporate America is here are the 12 buckets that you can put your, I think it's up to 20,500 this year that you can put a max of 20,500 into put 60% Mm -hmm. here, 30% here and 10% here. And you turn it over to someone and, and hope that they do their thing. And you basically, you don't really look at it, especially if the market's down, you don't open those quarterly statements. (laughs) You just hope that, you know, things turn around. So when you do need the money, it's there. But there's a whole world of investment opportunities, in particular in commercial real estate and in multifamily, which is my area of focus, that I did not look into. I did not research. I did not educate myself on until I left corporate America. So when I left in 2016, towards the latter part of 2016, I was listening to multifamily specific podcasts two to three a day. Before Mm -hmm. that, I had not listened to any podcasts on any topic. And then I transitioned to being a heavy listener to podcast interviews, specifically focused on the area that I was interested in. I had not attended any multifamily or real estate investment conferences of any kind. The only conferences that I tended to attend were ones that the company was paying for that related to my job in some way, where they're flying me somewhere, putting me up at a hotel, and they're paying the registration fee. And so I would sum all of that up to say that there's a ton of education that you can do that is going to better prepare you for making that transition when, whenever you ultimately decide the time is right. Uh, the other thing that you could be doing, and I did when I stepped away, is I started investing heavily in commercial real estate, and I did that via a self-directed IRA. Again, when I was in corporate life, I had no idea what a self-directed IRA was. And I had a legacy 401k from my prior job 
that I could have moved into a self-directed IRA had I done the research, had I become familiar with that and the options that it gives you. So education is what I would say is what you can do. One of the benefits of those investments, those passive investments that I'm referring to, and I invested in probably nine or 10 deals, institutional quality deals by sophisticated sponsors, beyond kind of the ROI that I expected and wanted from those investments, it's education. Well, it's not free because you're investing your dollars, but there's education that you derive from being a passive investor. So I only invested in the types of deals that I aspire to do as a sponsor, whether that was a year or two down the line. So I wanted to know, what does the capital stack look like? How do you present these opportunities to investors? How do these deals come together? What's the business plan? All of these things that you're going to need to know and do and execute on as a sponsor, I was getting kind of a a passive view and insight into what that looks like. And so all of that I package and I I jokingly refer to it as my Clive's self-directed real estate MBA, because that's effectively what it was uh, between the education, the conferences, the podcasts, the books, the actual investments with my dollars. All of that was giving me the education, the knowledge, the information that I needed to ultimately be a better sponsor when I finally made that transition. I 100% agree. That's a great way to prepare yourself for the transition. Entrepreneurship can be a cold game (laughs) if you're not prepared. And just by, like you said, educating yourself, having that mindset of what you want to do, getting everything in line before you take that jump is something that would for sure provide a way better transition, quite frankly, than, you know, someone who is just trying to just go cold turkey into the world of commercial real estate. There's just so many different parts from like raising capital, finding deals, you know, the syndication docs. I mean, it's just so much in this business. For anyone that is trying to make that transition into real estate, 100% be prepared. Is there any advice that you would give on the financial side too? Because obviously, you know, within our business, you know, we get paid in different ways, right? But most of the money comes from either acquisition fee or, you know, some sort of capital transaction or a sale. And so in between, there's that gap. Unless you're not doing deals, you may not be getting paid, right? Is there anything that you would give advice to for people who are trying to transition that might have some apprehension on jumping out there because, you know, the income might not be as consistent like a, um, a corporate job? Yeah. And it's justified apprehension, right? Because I tell people that from the age of 18, when I left corporate life at the end of 2016, I found myself in a situation where for the first time in my adult life, I had more money leaving my household than was coming in on a monthly basis. And so that takes some big adjustment to (laughs) because you've got a pie that is shrinking every month because of that imbalance. And so when I talk about getting outside of my comfort zone, that was a big part of getting outside of my comfort zone because the thought of, hold on a second, when I add up what's coming in and what's going out, I'm at a deficit each month. (laughs) Yeah. So financially, I would say, obviously, savings is important. As you look to embark on that entrepreneurial journey, whatever you've been able to save that is going to sustain you because I tell people I'm not an overnight success from the very first LOI that I submitted 
to the first deal I was awarded, including kind of a dormant period of COVID, it was the better part of two years. So a couple things helped me. One, prior to departing corporate life, I had never kind of lived the lifestyle commensurate with my income. So I always lived modestly and within my means. And so there was no car notes. Our cars were paid off. There was no vacation rental or home that we had another, you know, payment, note payment on. The only debt that I had, we had, is collateralized debt tied to real estate, which I define as good debt on an appreciating asset. So I lived humbly. I lived below my means. So there was no scaling back of the lifestyle because I'm now no longer in corporate life. We pretty much kept living the same way. The thing that did help me and help sustain me uh, throughout that period was that I had some small real estate holdings. I My very first real estate investment was a duplex property. I was working in New York City. I bought that in 1999. I sold it in 2018. So obviously a long-term hold. But what that did for me was that at a time where I was in the situation I described earlier of that imbalance, I was able to cash out of a small multifamily, a two-unit in this case, And then that equity um, or those proceeds were able to sustain me to allow me to keep going. And so before I cashed out, obviously, I was getting some cash flow from that property, but nowhere near enough to kind of replace uh, the income that I previously was earning. So that helped me. I also I bought a five unit uh, when I stepped away from corporate life. And so that was generating some cash flow. And then ultimately, I, I bought that in 2017. And then I ended up selling that on March 31st of 2020. So two weeks into COVID, I sold yeah. that. That was another lifeline yeah. that enabled <laughs> me to keep going in my pursuit right. until I ultimately broke through and got that first deal. But you've got to know how the bill is going to be paid, how you're going to sustain yourself. Otherwise, you're going to fall into the trap of following the temptation of this is too tough. This is uncomfortable. Let me return to my comfort zone, which is be a W-2 salaried employee where that direct deposit is hidden every two weeks, regardless of what's going on. So uh, you got to figure out what's that sustainability plan for you. Yeah, no, that's really great. And that's the same approach that I had when I left my private equity position actually a few months ago was just being able to like leverage my own personal portfolio. And, you know, Living modestly, I mean, I I bought a duplex in a house hack, and that really allowed me to live below my means and just invest all of the surplus that I got from the job and then also from the investments that I was doing um, on the side as well. I mean, for our listeners who are trying to get into this game full time, I think definitely having that core that you can fall back on the cash flow in between deals, specifically if you want to get into real estate, private equity. I mean, we just got to close deals unless we have different buckets of cash flow that are like coming from different aspects, you know? So that's, that's really great advice. Hey, listen up. If you're an employee, business owner, or professional athlete with money in the bank, earning 0% return, and you're thinking about passively investing in real estate, 
Well, you need to check out our ultimate syndication guide for passive investors. This free guide absolutely covers everything you need to know about passively investing in real estate syndication or just real estate in general. If you want access to this valuable resource, go to MerlinAcquisitions.com slash passive guide to download the free syndication guide for passive investors. That's M-E-R-L-Y-N-N acquisitions.com slash passive guide or head over to the show notes and click the link to download. Now let's get back to the show. Talk about that first deal. Well, before we get to that, I'd love for you to touch on kind of like the mindset shift between the passive and active investor, because there might be some people who are interested in like getting in on the active side, but don't really understand maybe like the the amount of work that requires (laughs) on the active side versus passive side. Can you touch on like the benefits of like both and maybe some challenges as well? So one thing I tell anyone who tells me, Clive, I want to do what you're doing. I want to be a a sponsor of multifamily apartment communities. I tell them to think about this. When you get to that point where you you are awarded that first deal and you transition into full-scale capital raising mode, if you get a question from one of your prospective investors and that question is, Yannick, have you ever invested in one of these deals? What was your experience like? And if your answer is, well, I've actually never invested in one of these deals. And (laughs) here are all the reasons why I want you to invest in me and my first deal, but I've not done what I'm asking you to do. So you lose some credibility. Uh, Maybe your close friends and family, they're going to invest with you regardless. But by and large, most people, that's going to be a red flag. And they're going to be like, hmm, you haven't really demonstrated a sustained interest in the space that you are now looking to be active in. And so I tell anyone who's aspiring to be a syndicator, a sponsor of deals, invest in a minimum of one deal passively. I talked earlier about the educational benefit and value that you're going to derive from being a passive investor. And when you're a passive investor, the mindset is, I'm putting up this money and that's all I need to do. I'm a passive investor outside of the money that I put into the deal. I don't have any risk. When you start thinking about being a, an active investor and taking other people's money into your opportunities, you know, I know, given the worlds that we come from, now you, are, you have a fiduciary responsibility to the people from whom you take money. And so, you know, what you might do with your own money, decisions that you might make, you know, that's not the standard that you can use. Now you're a fiduciary mm-hmm. for third parties. And so the, the standards go up, the scrutiny goes up, the expectations go up. You know, you're probably going to be more conservative, more disciplined with other people's money than you are even with your own. But from a mindset standpoint, it, it's really night and day in terms of being a passive and being an active in terms of the work. So, you know, when you think about how do we earn the monies that we earn in connection with the deals that we do? So for the two years that I was submitting LOIs and being best and final runner up, uh, you know, uh, a bridesmaid, but never a bride, all of that is my investment of time. So I'm developing relationships with brokers, property managers, other third parties that are essential to the business that we're in. I'm touring properties, business meals, expenses, all of that is on my dime. And so mm-hmm. I'm not getting for each of those deals that ends up going nowhere. Uh, for each of those deals that I've fully underwritten, that I've toured the property, 
I've put a ton of time into that. And so from my standpoint, it makes sense that when you do get a deal awarded to you that you're then sharing with your investor community, that you receive reasonable compensation for all that it took for you to land that deal, because a lot goes into it that the investors are just blind to all of the effort yeah. that went into it. Same thing from the asset management standpoint. So Ooh, that's a whole separate beast right there. After you close the property. Yeah. So that's when the real fun begins. And so, you know, most of us are charging asset management fees. And so people may say, what, what are you doing to deserve or earn that asset management fee? Well, <laughs> you've got a business plan that you have shared with them that led to them making the investment. And that business plan needs to be executed and implemented effectively. So even though we're turning over the property, in our case, we're, we turn it over to a third party professional property manager, they're handling the day to day, but they're not responsible for implementation and execution of your business plan. So you've got to oversee that and ensure that everything that they're doing is leading to the achievement of the business plan, whether it's a value add or whatever the model is. And so someone's got to do that work. And so I tell people, look, I don't have a nine to five. My nine to five is any deal that I'm associated with as an active sponsor. That's what I'm doing during my nine to five. And so, you know, I'm on the phone with the property manager. I'm on the phone with contractors. I'm on the phone with designers, insurance, tap, you know, all these people that are part of the the ecosystem. So that's what we're doing to earn our funds. And, uh, you know, I found that as long as it's reasonable, our investors do not begrudge us that and, and they want us to be reasonably compensated to deliver the returns that we've promised to them. Yeah. And I wouldn't invest with anyone that isn't reasonably compensated, right? Because if the deal is a heavy value add deal and that operator isn't necessarily making money in between the deal, I mean, you know, we're, we're in this business to quite frankly, make a profit. And so if someone brought me a deal saying, oh, I'm just going to work for free, I'm just going to renovate 50 out of a hundred units and <laughs> and there's no compensation tied to it, I would, I would be skeptical because you want people to be compensated fairly and paid for their time because that keeps them motivated to show up, right? It's no different from a contractor. It's no different from that line of business is that when you have the, when you're compensated fairly, you're going to show up, right? It's just like if you went to work and your boss said, Hey, I'm, you're going to do all this work, but uh, I don't think I want to compensate you. You know, you would feel some type of way about that, right? So I think you well said when it comes to the difference between the passive and active investors. I heard you on another podcast talk about, you know, the law of the first deal and how starting with your first deal last year and then how that landed your second. And can you first share a little bit about the, you know, what is the the notion of the law of the first deal and like how that helped you you know, build a portfolio today? Yeah. So I mentioned kind of when I stepped away from corporate, one of the things that I started doing was listening to podcasts pretty heavily. One of the podcasts that I listened to was Michael Blanc's. He's the first person I heard talk about the law of the first deal. And so the law of the first deal essentially says that going from zero to one will be the hardest deal that you will ever do because it's going to be One, it's unfamiliar terrain. It's going to take longer probably than you want it to take, despite the desire, the effort, all of that. But once you land that first deal, you transition into a world of credibility being associated with you as a deal closer. 
And you can go from being perceived as a tire kicker to, oh, he actually bought the car and drove off the lot. So the next time you come on the lot, they're looking at you and they're coming to you now. They're not just letting you roam around unattended. They're coming to you and saying, you've bought a car before. There's a good chance you may buy another one. <laughs> and so to kind of just extend that to our space, once you get that first deal, deals number two, three, and each subsequent deal should come much more easily with a little bit less effort. And, you know, that played out exactly for me. So, and I'll tell you how that played out for me. So again, I was not an overnight success, probably two years of submitting offers before I finally got awarded a deal. And uh, that first deal was a $30 million deal, 244 units. We got that in summer of 21. We ended up closing in November of 21. The very week that we closed that first deal, we were awarded a $40 million, 200 unit deal that same week. And I should ask him, but I, I've not. But I'm pretty sure that when that broker of the second deal uh, was in conversations with their client, the seller, one of the questions that is going to come up in invariably in those conversations is, who are these people? Can they close? What have they done? And so that broker, if, and I'm assuming he did get this question, when he got that question, he was able to say, you know, one, I, I've known Clive for two years, which he had. He just closed a deal uh, this week or last week that happens to be in the same submarket. It's a $30 million deal. And again, I've not asked him, but I'm pretty sure because it's a close-knit community, he might have reached out to the selling broker of that first deal and said, you know, what was it like to work with Clive? Is it going to the dentist or was it an easy transition? You know, he probably sought out that type of input, that type of insight on me because a broker never wants to put, regardless of how much you're professing that you're going to pay or offering to pay, they never want to put someone in front of their client where they have any doubts as to your ability to close. So they want to vet you and they want to be able to talk with confidence to their client, the seller, and be able to say, oh, no, he's closed uh, before. It's great if you've closed with them. But if you haven't closed with them or that brokerage, if you've closed with another reputable brokerage firm and, and another kind of higher profile deal, that gives them confidence that, oh, no, he you know, he's not just a tire kicker. He's someone who's proven himself capable of closing a deal of comparable size to the one that he's pursuing now. So again, deal number two got awarded the week that I closed deal number one. Law of the first deal. That's how it is, man. And that's exactly what happened to me last year as well, was I did the same thing going through the transaction. And literally, as we were kind of going into that last 30-day kind of financing phase, we got a call saying, hey, no, you guys are working on this. Here's this across <laughs> in the same kind of you know subdivision. Yeah. And um, I mean, it's it, you're 100 percent right. You know, just that credibility of like being able to say, yeah, I've done this. Yeah, I've closed this because brokers I always tell people this, like you want to build a relationship with brokers and definitely get on their list because that's going to drive the deal flow to your inbox. But you the goal is to get on their short list when they're picking up the phone and calling you and saying, hey, Clive, I, I got a deal that fits your your buy box. Are you interested? And that's the same thing that happened for us too, is that now, you know, when we started off, 
we were calling brokers. We were trying to get their attention. We were trying to talk up our company and and say why we should, you know, um, be on their list. But now they, they call us all the time. Hey, you know, we have this deal coming up. Are you interested? So a lot of value in, in what you mentioned just now. A quick additional story on Law of the First Deal. So I happened to be in Dallas uh, when we got awarded that first deal. And so it was a Friday that I did the buyer call uh, with the seller and the, their broker. We got awarded the deal. I flew back to Atlanta. That Monday, I got a call from a broker. I won't mention the firm or the brokerage firm. I got a call from a broker not related to the selling broker. And he said, hey, Clive, congratulations. I, I heard <laughs> that you got awarded XYZ deal. I've got these two off-market properties. I don't know if they you know, meet your criteria, um, but if you're interested, I'll shoot you over the confidentiality agreement. You can sign it and then I'll send you the financials. I had been talking to him, touring properties with him for the better part of two years. He had never sent me anything that was off-market. Uh, that wasn't publicly out there for everyone's consumption. And so those two properties turned out to not be a fit for me. But nonetheless, it's further validation about that law of the first deal. I hadn't mm-hmm. even closed that first deal. He just <laughs> heard that I got awarded that deal. And then the Monday, literally, I got back to Atlanta. I got a call from him and he was offering me these two off market. Now, obviously, he's not just offering it to me. It's probably a dozen or two dozen of their closest clients. But the point is that it wasn't publicly out there for public consumption at that point. And he's Mm. sharing it with me. And I don't think he would be doing that. But for that development that had occurred two days earlier. So, again, I love the first deal is real. Yeah. I mean, you have to establish yourself in the world of commercial real estate where it is a heavy influence on just the relationships, you have to establish yourself as a player really quickly because the quicker that you can do that, the quicker that you can get the deal flow, the quicker that you can get credibility, the quicker that your investors would have much more respect for what you're doing and and understand like your value as well. It's all about credibility and just establishing yourself as a player. So talk about like raising capital in like today's environment, given the fact that we're talking August, you know, 2022 right now, Rates have gone up. You know, the market is somewhat still in limbo in terms of like price expectations. And you have on one side, the sellers are expecting this price. And while they might be cash flowing, you know, that asset pretty well, you know, the capital markets is pretty expensive right now. Like, how are you having those conversations when raising capital in today's market, even though, you know, there's talk about a recession in the future and and all of that, um, those conversations? Yeah. So I think when you're having those conversations, you just need to make sure that you're conveying what you're doing to manage that risk. And so whether it's rising interest rates, whether or not it's you know an uncertain lending market, you've got to just proactively be sharing. And here's how we're accounting for that. It's obviously leading to we're seeing lower leverage available to us as sponsors. And so Whereas you might have been able to do 75% or max 80% uh, six months ago or a year ago, um, now I don't underwrite anything above a 65% uh, leverage. And probably 60% is closer to reality, which means you're needing to raise more capital. But there's a way that you can talk about that because that that too is a way of de-risking a project. So 
yeah, we've got to raise more capital and that's going to impact cash flow for sure. But it also takes risk off the table because the refinance risk is lessened. You know, if there is a, a major pullback in the market, the margins are not so thin that you're now in trouble because you're leveraged to the max, literally. So I think good sponsors, and hopefully I'm in that camp, are just thinking about how does this impact my underwriting? How does this impact my exit planning? And then how does this impact what I proactively convey to my investor community? I found that yeah. the capital is still there. The capital didn't disappear. There's still people willing to invest in these opportunities, but you've got to kind of just differentiate yourself from other potential sponsors. Um, and I think it's in times of challenge or uncertainty that the good sponsors differentiate themselves. So I really don't worry about raising capital. If I've got a good deal, I think I can effectively communicate to my investor database and pool you know, the benefits and why they should consider it. And part of that communication is here's how I'm managing risk, not just, you know, at the closing table, but here's how I'm managing risk through the life of our, you know, whole period. That's a great, great answer. Um, I think now more than ever is more important to that your sponsors make sure that the deal is underwritten well and has that, like you mentioned, that de-risk kind of effect to it. Because I think that, you know, over the last five to 10 years, multifamily has been seeing some really great tailwinds. And I think now is a time where we have interest rates that are high. You know, a lot of capital is chasing multifamily. Things seem to be getting tighter and tighter every time we put in an LOI. At some point, it's going to come down to fundamentals that are going to win the game. And so if you're able to find a deal that makes sense and communicate that effectively, I mean, we're still living in a, you know, inflationary environment. We are helping our clients, which are our investors to put their capital to work and beat inflation and, and generate that those returns to be ahead of, of uh, where, where we are today. So really good answer on that part. So let me ask you a question. You know, if you were to start this marathon all over again, what would you do differently? Maybe our, our listeners could kind of benefit from, you know, uh, something that you would you would do differently in your business today or something that you that you did in the past that hey, you said, hey, I wish I could have done this thing differently. Well, the obvious answer is I would have started earlier <laughs> and before <laughs> the starter kind of shot his gun, I would have been running. And so I didn't need to wait 20 years and, and have a 20 year corporate career before I got started. So I would have been doing more in parallel even while I was a gainfully employed corporate citizen, there are things that I could have been doing in parallel that I probably convinced myself or someone convinced me that you don't have the time to do that. And again, that's trading your time for money. I found that in reflection that there's more that I could have been doing to help with that transition and to put me further along that path had I been doing some things in parallel. So that's probably the biggest uh, response or answer that I would give related yeah. to that. And and the yet going back again to the educational piece, uh, there are things that I could have been doing to get me started sooner. Even the networking, something as basic as networking. I did not have a healthy respect for the importance of networking when I was in corporate life because my day-to-day -day job was not impacted by how effectively I was networking. When you get into the real estate world, 
networking is the lifeblood of what we do. And so if you're not networked and well networked, (laughs) you're not going to be successful. And so my whole view and perception of networking totally flipped uh, when I got on this path of real estate entrepreneurship. So again, you can be networking even as a, you know, if you're in the private equity world, if you're in legal, if you're in the pharmaceutical industry, there are lots of things that you can be doing that come down to just the basics of effective networking. So those are some of the things that I, I would say. That's great. Being able to start early definitely would allow you to have a much longer runway, right? I think that, you know, given the fact that, you know, some people might be a little afraid to get into real estate or they might not have the confidence, you know, certainly by starting early can obviously catapult your business to a whole different level. Right. And then in terms of uh, the networking side of things, I always say you're always one person away from taking your business to the next level. You know, you never know who you're going to meet. You can't be secretive as you know, in the world of private equity, people have to know what you're doing. People have to know you, they have to like, know, and trust you to most of the time invest with you. And I think those are some great gems that you were able to share today. So, so Clive, um, talk about your Facebook group, the African-American multifamily Facebook group, and why that's so important to be visible and show representation in the world of commercial real estate. Yeah. So it's the African-American multifamily investor network. And we started it probably maybe around two years ago. And we currently have about 1300 people in the group. And it's focused uh, specifically on multifamily. We don't talk about any of the many other areas of real estate that you can be involved in. We're focused on multifamily. And we have people who are looking to make their first investment in multifamily and people who are closing 1,300 units in one transaction and everyone in between and all of the different roles that you can think of within the multifamily space. I probably, like you, Yannick, I'm a member of two dozen multifamily-related groups. (laughs) This is the only group that I'm aware of that is kind of catered to or targeted to the niche audience of of African-Americans. And it was important and is important to me to curate a space for this community because we're so disproportionately underrepresented. So in in commercial real estate, I think the percentage is that less than 2% of the roles in commercial real estate are occupied by African-Americans. So we know that that's very much uh, disproportionate to our our general makeup of the population, which is 13 or 14%. And so because I believe that real estate plays a critical role in uh, creating generational wealth. Because I was in the area of multifamily, I said, we've got to create a space where we can show examples of people who come from communities and backgrounds uh, similar to yours. Because when you go to many of these conferences, and we talked a little bit about this offline, but when, when you go to these conferences, you can come away with the impression that it's predominantly white men between the ages of 35 and 55 that are kind of doing these deals. And so um, if you're a woman, if you're black or some other uh, underrepresented group, that doesn't give you confidence that you could potentially replicate the success that they are speaking about from the stage. And so I just wanted to curate a space where they would see examples and there would be free sharing of information, encouragement, 
along this journey, which again, it's not an overnight, it is a marathon and you need to kind of have people reinforcing you and uh, you want to see those examples of those relatable examples of success that you might not be exposed to if you just confine your interest to kind of the general audience serving groups. Yeah, no, that's great that you have that community that are able to see each other, right? Doing things, things at a high level. And it's not just, you know, beginners. It's, you know, people that might be in the middle, people that might have done their first deal and people who might be experts and just, I mean, seeing is believing, you know, perception is reality. And so being able to just touch someone who looks like you that are in the space that you want to play in, I think across all ethnicities is something that's really important too. So Clive, tell the listeners a little bit about how they can follow you, stay in touch with you, maybe invest with your company. How can the listeners get in touch with you? Sure. So I'm, I'm active on social media, on LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, Instagram, but the best way to get a hold of me and, and you can connect with me via each of those platforms is via my website, which is parkroyalcapital.com. Uh, we launched that a couple months ago. I'm, I'm very proud of the website. So I'd love the listeners to take a perusal of that and give me feedback. I kind of launched my business. Then I got around to, you know, getting the website up and running and things of that nature. But um, that's the best way to get a hold of me, parkroyalcapital.com. Awesome. So thank you so much, Clive, for being a guest on our show. I mean, we talked a, a lot about your transition from being a corporate lawyer to real estate, helping our listeners today figure out, you know, how to get by within the world of entrepreneurship, having that cash flow you know, the law of the first deal, just a ton of different nuggets today. So thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you to the listeners for tuning in to another episode of the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast. Let's take action. Be great today. And remember, real estate is a marathon, not a sprint. Just run your own race. Thanks again, Clive. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.